Well, it's been a week. Some of you are probably in shock. Actually, probably all of you are in shock. Some of you may be pleased. Others, probably more of you, are a bit dismayed. Um, I said on Facebook immediately as the results were coming in, I'm a data geek, right? So, like, I knew by 10 o'clock things were going differently than people had predicted it because I was digging down into Pennsylvania and, and Michigan just because it's who I am. And, and, and as I began to see how things were going, I said that um, rulers will come and go, but the calling of Christians is consistent, we're to love people, care for the sick, protect the vulnerable, and live into God's kingdom. I believe that with all of my heart, and I also believe with everything in me that no matter what, that the best is yet to come. That God is working in the midst of even what seems to be a dark time, God is working in the midst of this time to bring, to redeem and bring about something beautiful. I believe that. But I also suffer from what some people would refer to as as white man syndrome. Um, I don't easily get anxious about things because for whatever reason, white educated men normally end up on top. For whatever reason that might be, we end up okay. And so my natural inclination is to say, guys, it's going to be okay. Don't freak. But I need to acknowledge that there is a lot of fear and uncertainty. Not simply because of partisan politics, because partisan politics does a really good job of convincing you that the other side is dangerous. We do this all the time, and it bothers me, right? And so I always am very careful with demonizing either side, because the spin machine on both sides is very powerful. But... But because of many things that the president-elect has said, um, we are in uncertain times. Uh, The things that I've seen shared on Facebook, the celebration uh, or the the talk about a celebration um, in North Carolina by members of the Klan, by the celebration of David Duke, um, who who was a former Klansman, who said something along the lines of, we helped make this happen, it has brought out some of our darkest our darkest um, inclinations. And I, you need to hear me that the people, I do not believe that the people who elected um, Trump are, are, are bad people. Right? For most of it, they're your friends and your family, right? You, you know these people. For many of you, I know that they're your friends and your family from back home. Right? We're, we live in the enlightened coast and you know, we get to, we get to, to pontificate from our from, our, from the safe zone of D.C. They're not bad people. But there is darkness, and we're beginning to see this. And so here's what I want to say, and this isn't my sermon this morning, but I really felt like I needed to say that. That we hope that everything that the president-elect has said was just bluster. I, I tend to think it was, right? This, it's a showman. He knew exactly what he needed to say to get elected. But adding rhetoric like this to the national discourse is dangerous. And so this morning, I want to say to all of those who sit in fear and uncertainty that we are family, and we are in this together. 
And, and throughout history, the church, yes, the church has done some bad things throughout history. But in its most beautiful way throughout history, when we have been faced with darkness, the church has come together as a safe place, as a sanctuary, as a refuge. And we are in this together, whatever happens as we move forward. And I just need to say that. Um, it often feels empty to say that there's power in Jesus' name, right? Because it feels very uncertain. But the power that in Jesus' name is that we are empowered to face the darkness together. We are united together as family. Um, and we will, whatever happens, be in this together. Um, so I just wanted to, as we get, before I started my sermon, I wanted to say a prayer for us. Um, I want to say a prayer for our nation. Um, and then I'm going to jump into practicing abundance like nothing else has happened. So is that okay? <laughs> um, let's pray. God, my heart is heavy. I, I want to speak the right words. I don't want to, I don't want to allow us as a, as a congregation, as a people, to get caught up in partisan spin. But this past week has shown, has brought out some of our, the darker sides. People are behaving in ways for whatever reason that they hadn't behaved as openly before. And there's a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I just pray that you would pre begin to bring healing to our nation. That you would begin to bring reconciling peace and that you would begin with us. That this congregation, that this church, that the people in this, this room today, that we would begin to model to the world what it looks like when people come together in unity of every different, of, of different racial groups, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, of every different type of person that you can imagine that comes together and gathers, rich and poor and Republicans and Democrats, that we would begin to model what it looks like when people live together in peace and harmony and love for one another. And I pray that when the darker forces raise their ugly head, that we would unite as one and say, this is not okay. Empower us to put your future kingdom that is breaking into the present on display in our world. Amen. So we are in the middle of a series entitled Practicing Abundance. And I have to, full disclosure, if you've been at the table for a while, you have heard much of what I'm about to say. And if you hang out with us here at the table for a while longer, you will hear much of what I'm about to say again. Because it may be one of the what I think one of the most important practical messages that I have. Um, the, what I want us to hear today, I think, is something we need to hear over and over again. We're in the middle of a series, though, called Practicing Abundance. And, and it, we, we, began by, we began the first week by, by getting us to ask this question or helping us ask the question, what matters most? What are the things in your life that matters most? And then helping us decide our 
is, does our calendar and do, do the resources that we have match whatever we say matters most? And if you missed the first sermon, you can, want, you can catch up online at thetablechurch.org um, or on iTunes. And then last week, we talked about the way we use our calendars. And my challenge was for us to align our calendar with what matters most because we said this, our calendars are less about what we want to get done and more about who we want to become. And so today we turn our attention to another area of our lives where we feel scarcity, and that's in our wallets, right? Everyone, no matter how much money you make in this room, my chance, chances are that if you are a resident of D.C., you most likely would consider your, would always say, yeah, I could use a bit more money. And we, we feel scarcity in spite of what would look like to many people abundance. But the reason that many of us don't feel abundance is because we lack margin. We lack margin. I talked about this last, last year, and um, the, the, I, I talked about the story of the, the time that I felt wealth, the most wealthy in all my life was when I was living at home with my parents and working a full-time job in a gap year. Right? I wasn't making that much money, but I had no bills. My bank account was cl- growing by the day. I could buy anything or do anything that I wanted to, and I felt rich. In retrospect, I was earning like 15 bucks an hour. It really wasn't that rich. But because I had margin, I felt like I had, I was wealthy. And no matter how much you earn, if you spend all that comes in, there's no margin, and the lack of margin feels like scarcity. So if you earn 25000 a year and you're living on 20000 You'll feel better about your finances than someone who earns 100000 and lives on 120000 Like most of you, like me, probably remember a time in your, li- your life when you had actually little money, but you felt like you were rich. Maybe because you were living at home, or maybe it's because you are on a missions trip overseas, and compared to everyone else, you had an abundance of money. Or maybe you got that first big raise. I still remember when I got like a big raise, and before everything came out of my bank account that first week, like, I, it, like when it hit my, when the direct deposit hit, I thought, I'm rich, like this is amazing. And then my car payment and whatever else I had at the time came out and I was less rich than I thought. But, but the problem is, as life goes on, we begin feeling it, filling it with more and more things. Better wine, a nicer car, clothes that actually fit, right? Dinner at Rose's Luxury instead, or, or at Benihana instead of Taco Bell. And, and the better, the, and, and, the, the, and the beater you drove in college just doesn't, is, just doesn't bring you as much joy now that you have graduated to a brand new car with leather interior and windows that actually work, right? And before long, our car, so this side story, but the car Charlie and I drove for the first seven years of our marriage, I think, um, had a leak. We don't know where the water came from, but anytime it rained, our floor would just have a pool of water in it for the next two to three weeks. And so we literally, our car smelled like mildew constantly, but we were committed to that car. And honestly, for what, we thought it was a great car. And then we bought a new car for the first time in our lives, and that car, we realized, was crap. Um, <laughs> And before long, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but it's, it's impossible to go back. Two-buck Chuck, 
just won't cut it again once you've been to a neighbor's house or friend's house who shows you what good wine actually tastes like. When Charlotte and I first moved to D.C., we didn't, we, we came from a tea, both of us came from teetotaling family, so we really didn't know what good wine was supposed to taste like. And so we went to a, a wine tasting party where you hid the label, right, what type of wine you were drinking, and then you were supposed to guess which was the most expensive wine and which was the cheapest wine. We both, Charlotte and I, the only people in the entire party, like 20 people are there, we're the only, we both chose Two Buck Chuck as being the most expensive wine because it's got, it's got like a lot of sugar in it, and so it tasted a bit sweet, and so we thought clearly this is the more expensive wine. But right, there's no going back. And the more you buy into the... To the life you're living, the more that you buy into the life that you're living now, the harder it is to go back, the harder it is to let go, and the more scarcity you begin to feel. Because there's always something better. There's always a better house, there's always a better bike, there's always a better neighborhood, there's always better wine, there's always a better meal. And so today we're going to explore this problem through the lens of the Apostle Paul. But before I do, I want to give us some background, and this actually pulls from what we talked about last year. But there's this passage, um, there's a passage in 1 Timothy that says this. It says, Tell people who are rich at this point not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. In the earliest church, one of the, one of the more powerful symbols to the world of their love for one another was the, was the diversity of the early church. Right? So it was, you know, it was rich and poor, slave and free, males and females served equally, and, and, and early on, you had, incredible, um, you had incredible community among classes of people or groups of people who would never hang out together. But as time went on, and we catch glimpses of this in the New Testament, there began to be a divide between those who had resources and those who didn't have resources. There's a passage that talks about eating and drinking the communion unworthily. Some of you may remember that. Um, in the passage about eating and drinking communion unworthily, what was happening was the richer members were getting together before everyone else, and they were having a party. They were drinking good wine, eating all the food, and then later the poor members would show up and they would get the scraps of, what was, of the scraps of the meal. And so Paul is, take, Paul is seeing that this is becoming a problem. And so he says, tell the people who have abundance not to become egotistical, because as you gain abundance... As you gain abundance, it begins to be easier and easier to think that you are better than people without. Tell the people who have abundance not to place their hope in their finances, which are uncertain, but instead to place their hope in God, who, who is the one who richly provided everything for our enjoyment. And then Paul continues on. Tell them to do good. He doesn't command them to be good. He says, do good. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things that they do. Be an above-average do-gooder. Because the more blessed that you are, right? Paul believed that the more blessed that you are, the more opportunities you have to whom much has been given, much is expected. In the U.S., in the U.S., the more money you have and the more time you have also means the more options that you have, right? And, and our time and our resources end up getting... Um, gobbled up on ourselves. 
And we talked about this last week, about just the amount of time that we have, the amount of leisure time that we have. Did you know that if you work, if you sleep eight hours, which, who gets eight hours? Anyone get eight hours sleep? Um, one person, we need to talk about your secret. Um, if you get eight hours sleep and you work 50 hours a week, you work eight, 50 hours a week and you get eight hours sleep, you still have 62 hours of free time in your week. And then you take out all the other things, commuting and all the other things. We end up with what we talked about last week. You end up with about 30 hours of leisure time. But the more time you have, your inclination is not to do more for other people, but your inclination is to do more for yourself. Most of the world would kill to have the margin in their calendar that we have. And Paul is saying, look, if you have, Paul is saying that those of us with abundance, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to steward well the time and the resources that have been given to you. Paul says, look, be rich in good deeds because those with more are expected. He continues, tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. People with abundance are less generous than people without. Um, because I love data, I, I dug down into the giving patterns of people in Washington, D.C. And I took, I took the, uh, 2002, um, which is the neighborhood um, by H Street, uh, where we started our church. And if you live in H, the H Street neighborhood, and this is based on the 2000, I think it's the two, updated 2014, it may be the 2010 census data. Um, if you live in the H Street neighborhood and you make 50000 or less, you make 50000 or less, you gave away 8.42% of your income. If you live in this zip code, 2001 or 20010 or 09, I guess this is 09, you gave away 6.45% of your income if you earned under 50000 a year. That was, you gave to charity, nearly 10%. But... If you made between 75, if you made uh, up to 75,000, you gave away 3.3%. And if you made 100,000, you gave away 2%. And it just, if you keep going up to 200,000, it gets less. And, and because the reason is, is that when you have wealth, your temptation is to hoard. When you have abundance, your temptation is to hoard. And often we think we are, we are above average do-gooders because we are giving a larger sum than someone without as many resources as we have. But, but the truth is, we're not. We're hoarding. Rich people give large sums, but smaller percentages. And I want to share a story from, um, from the Gospels. I want to share a story that Jesus talks about that I think really has the power to transform your life, not only your, your, the way you invest in others, but I honestly think this, this principle that we discover um, in this story really has the power to transform your finances, the way you approach money. Um, so the story goes like this. Jesus is, always trying, Jesus is always trying to capture the imaginations of his disciples. Right? So he's always painting a picture. You've heard it said, I say, or he'll tell a parable. He's always doing something to try to help them see the world with new eyes. Right? He's trying to help them look, see what it looks like when God's reign, when God's administration comes to earth. And so one day, Jesus is preaching in the temple, and he sees something that captures his eye, and he, and he knows that this is a moment where he can teach his disciples. And so he's at the temple, 
and, and they, there's this jar at the door where people, as they're coming to the temple, would make a donation. And so Jesus, we read, um, beginning with verse 41, Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury, and he observed how the crowd gave their money. And so Jesus is sitting there, and he calls his disciples and says, Hey, guys, sit here. I want you to see something. And many rich people were throwing in lots of money. And one poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth of church, or, or, or two small copper coins worth a penny. Now, if you grew up in church, you may have heard this interpreted as the widow's mite. You might have heard a story about the widow's mite. Um, and and the, 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 these copper coins were known as the smallest denomination um, in, in, uh, in, in, in Hebrew life. It, it was about... One, so a denarius is about one day's wage. This was one, the, 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 the denomination she used was one 128th of a denarius. It was just, it was nothing. It was minuscule. And then Jesus says this. He, sa- he called his disciples and he said to them, I assure you that this widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasure, the treasury. She was richer towards God than all the others. And, and they've got to be a bit confused because Jesus is saying, look, she's doing more than all these other people. And, and the disciples have been sitting there and they watch her put these two tiny coins in and they've been watching other people literally bring bags of money and dump them upside down into the treasury. And Jesus is trying to get across that zeros on the end of a number, zeros on the end of a number does not move God. God is not impressed by the number of zeros that we give. Percentages move God. He says this, All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she from her hopeless poverty has given everything she has. Paul's trying to say, look, rich people give large sums and larger percentages. And he's saying, look, be generous, be above average. And I want to talk, and this idea of percentages, this idea of not just giving from your abundance or learning to live in a percentage is what I want to talk about just for a minute this morning. And, and if you're new to the table, like this is a weird sermon. Actually, this is a weird series for me, but I like to every so often talk a bit practically. Um, you are living on a percentage of your income. You are living on a percentage of your income. The problem is, for many of you, you have no idea what that percentage is. Right? For some of you, it's 110%. You'll figure out pretty quickly that you may be living on a bit too much. And if I had one piece of advice, if I had one piece of advice from my adult life, it would be this. Pick a percentage of your income to live on, and then pick a percentage and live on it. Because you're living on a percentage. The point is whether you're going to be able to choose the percentage. Uh, I, this idea really is impacted by a guy named John Wesley. You'll hear me talk about John Wesley. He's this um, church leader about 300 years ago in, the, in, in Great Britain. Um, but Wesley uh, became fairly wealthy uh, through, a number, through publishing and through a number of other ventures. Uh, he was the, anyone know William Wilberforce, uh, the guy who helps... Uh, helps lead uh, the, the end of slavery in the Great Britain. He was the Wesley influenced Wilberforce in his movement. In fact, the last letter that Wesley writes before he dies is to William Wilberforce, um, encouraging him to continue the fight a- against slavery in Great Britain. 
but in Wesley it amounted to great wealth, but, but he grew up dirt poor, and because of good fortune, he had done fairly well for himself, and he became an Oxford don, or he became a professor, essentially, at Oxford. And this position came with 30 pounds a year, which was more than enough for him to live comfortably. He spent his money, according to his writings, he spent his money on tobacco, playing cards, and brandy. And, and then, which is not the worst way to spend your money, but anyway, um, and then one day, he came in and he found his chambermaid didn't have a coat in his, in, during the winter. So uh, he had this person who's cleaning his, his room. He came in and he realized she didn't have a coat. And his initial reaction was to dip into his pocket and pull out some change and give it to her. And then he realized he didn't have enough. And so not long after that moment, Wesley made a commitment that for the rest of his life, he was going to live on 28 pounds a year. And, and West, he was, I think, 30 when he made this commitment. And he kept that commitment throughout the rest of his life, no matter how much wealth he made. And Wesley became, through marriage and a number of other things, one of the wealthier people um, in Great Britain. And he gave it all away. In fact, he, he planned to give everything away until when he died, he would have six pounds left. And so when Wesley died, he had six pounds left. And he had... Um, some of the poor of London be his pallbearers. And he gave instructions in his will that the final six pounds were to be distributed, one to each pallbearer. He died penniless on purpose. Wesley made a decision when he was young what he was going to live on, and he lived on that for the rest of his life. Right? The, the, the assumption is right now that we, we spend money, I mean, it, let me just talk about myself. The, for us, we spent money rather loosely when we were younger, my wife and I didn't have kids, we didn't have, many re- we didn't have many responsibilities, and so we spent money, and our thought was always, as someday we will then begin to be more generous. Because it'll get easier, we'll have more money, we'll be making more, but what I've discovered is the older I get, the harder it is to be generous. Right? The older I get, the harder it is to be generous, because it really is, I'm not kidding when I make, like, it really is hard to go back to eating Taco Bell. I love dinners at Rose's Luxury. And, and, I w- and, and you get to a point where you can go and do that without worrying about doing it. But it's really hard to go back. And so at this point, and I know many of us are, are fairly young, at this point in our lives, if you figure out what percentage of your income you're going to live on, it can be transformative to your life. Because forget, forget faith, forget anything else. You will be a happier person if you have margin in your life. Because if you are always living at the limits of what you earn, you will always be stressed and you will always feel scarcity and you will never have the freedom to pursue the life that God wants for you. Because you will never be able to do something crazy and give it all up and go follow the dream that God has for you because you have way too many bills to pay and way too many credit cards and way too many other responsibilities and you are stuck. What percentage of your income do you live on? Here's a dashboard for you. Here's a dashboard. I love dashboards. How much money do you live on? How much money do you save? And how much money are you giving away? Now, this is not a sermon on frugality. Look, some of you, you, as you figure out, like, what you value in life, it could be great food. Enjoy great food spend way too much on some ridiculous meal. That's okay. Like, this is not about, it's figuring out what, are the, what do you value in life? 
But, but it also is, a, it is about sacrifice. Maybe if you value going out and having a great meal, it means you're going to have to live with a roommate or you're going to buy used clothes or whatever. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. It's about aligning your spending with your values. And for those of you who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, it also means giving beyond yourself. If you are spending all of your time and all of your money on yourself, you will never be able to love other people the way that Jesus loves other people. Jesus says it this way, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your love will be also. And if you are spending your time and your resources, whatever your treasure is, your gift, the gifts you've been given in life, the, the talents, the money, the time, whatever it is, if you are spending it all on yourself, your heart, your love will be for yourself. The thing is that Americans actually do give away a bit of money. This is the second thing I think we should, I'd like us to hear. We do give away an okay amount of money. But the thing is we give it away unintentionally. We don't decide what to give. We just give it away spontaneously. So you get invited to a fundraiser and they show a really powerful video or a friend posts something on Facebook, you know, the ice, ice bucket challenge. You're like, oh yeah, I, I should give to that. So, you know, you, you'll donate $50 to this. A friend's running a marathon. You, you know, you'll sponsor you know, the amount for each mile. And so you'll, you'll give a little bit there. And so we, we give. If something grips our heart, we'll give. But you're not thinking in terms of percentages and you're not being, we're not often intentional about the way we're giving. We're giving, listen, we're giving from our spare change. We're giving from our spare change. And the only way to ensure that your hope doesn't migrate towards wealth is reversing the trend, and to reverse the trend is this. Pre-decide, pre-decide what percentage you're going to live on. Pre-decide what percentage you're going to save. And pre-decide what percentage you're going to give. You've got to figure this out. That means it means you need to figure out what you're going to live on and then what things aren't going to fit, what things you need to cut. Because like I said, it will never get any easier. For some of us, that means being creative, making hard choices. It means maybe Dunkin' Donuts over Peregrine. Well, that's my coffee choice. Um, Peregrine is my favorite coffee shop. It might mean making coffee at home. I hope not. For some of us, it might, like I said, it might mean taking a, a roommate. You have to predecide an amount to save and then to give away. And whatever you predecide to give away, you need to give away first. Right? You, that goes first. I want to get a bit more practical. And, and I know this is an overly practical sermon, but I, I think we need to hear this. Um, I would suggest that you pick two or three organizations. So you predecide, let's, for, for easy, we're going to say um, you predecide to give away 10%. That's what the church has always talked about, it's tithing. You need to pick two to three organizations where you give your money and where you give your time. Look, it does not have to be, I mean, I, I'll, I can give you a pitch for why the church is a great place to give money, but this is not what this is about. Right? You need to find what are the passions of your heart. Like, do you care about human trafficking? Or you need to find a place where you can, in, or, or ending human trafficking? Not, uh, um, do you care about ending human trafficking? Yeah, I said once, I was like giving this, I was giving a similar talk, and I was like, do you care about supporting human trafficking? And like, I don't think that's what you meant. Um, <laughs> do you care about ending human trafficking? 
then find a way, an organization where you can invest both your time and your money. Do you care about ending homelessness in the city? Find a place where you can invest your time and your money. Choose two to three organizations. Honestly, it's probably best to, like, to limit, like shrink it down. I'd probably go with two. Where, you can, where your time and your money can give. And, and, and I think it's important that you not only give, but you also volunteer. Because for some of you, Giving money is easy. You've got so much, you don't even know what to do with it. I remember uh, I preached similar sermon about three years ago, and this young woman came up to me afterwards, and she's like, money is easy. She's like, I got so much money that I literally could give away buckets, and I wouldn't notice. And I was like, we should be friends. Um, <laughs> but she's like, for me, it's about time. Right? She's like, to have all that money, I work such an insane schedule that I spend all my time on myself. Right? So it, you need to also be investing not just your money, but you also need to be investing your time. Now, I do want to make a pitch for the church, for the church, because we are here today, or less a pitch and more a thank you. We are here today because many of you predecided to give generously of your time and your money. That's the only reason we're here. It'd be impossible to operate a church based on people sporadically volunteering. If I didn't know that Shakir was going to show up on Sunday to make the best coffee in the city, right? I, I would be panic. What was that? Okay, yeah, a little, little love for Shakir's coffee. Like, it'd be, we would be in a panic constantly, right? Someone predecided to show up to invest time and money to make the table church possible. And I don't do this enough, but I, I want to just say thank you to all of you who predecide to both give time and money to make the table possible. Because every time someone decides to follow Jesus, it's because of you. And every time a newcomer walks into the community for the first time and makes a lifelong friend, it's because of you. And every time someone discovers and lives into their purpose to the table church, it's because of you. And every time someone is fed on a Saturday, either here or at the church in Douglas, in Douglas and Northeast, it's because of you predeciding to give your time and your money. And every time someone is baptized at the table, it's because of you. You're an investor. You're a stakeholder. And I just want to say thank you. Can we, I, I wanna, can we give applause to everyone who makes the table possible? People show up here, predecide to show up at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and prepare the music and get the sound just right and to turn the lights on and to get the kids' room set up and to get the, the heat on. I just, I'm so thankful. So many of you have incredible stories to share, stories of deciding to follow Jesus and discovering your purpose, of finding community, of making lifelong friends because someone predecided to give their time and money. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do this morning. Pick a percentage to live on. Pick a percentage, whatever it might be, right? It's going to be 70%, 50%. There's a couple in our, in our downtown campus that chooses to live on 50% of their income. And they then um, save and give the, the other 50% of their income. 
and they have some goals in life. Like they want to be able to retire at, I think it's age 40, so that they can um, serve other people with the rest of their life, right? They've pre-decided what they want to do. They figured out what matters most. Right now they're doing some crazy, they're working crazy hours. And if you were to see them, you'd think, wow, you're, you're really spending a lot of time on yourselves. But they've set a plan and they are executing that plan. I am not that disciplined. But like pre-decide what you're going to live on. And then pre-decide what you're going to save. They they do studies like the average American, I think 50 to 60% of Americans could not, if they had a $400 expense, they'd have to borrow to make that happen. Pre-decide to save. And then pre-decide to invest and to give beyond yourself. And, And this is not, like I said, this is not like some pitch that you need to give to the table church. Now, I think the table I'll make a pitch for us. I think we're an incredible place to invest because it makes an impact in people's spiritual lives. It builds community. It works for justice. It feeds the hungry. It provides a place to wrestle with important issues. We have racial dialogues here. There's amazing things that happen here, and I think this is an incredible place to dedicate your time and your money. But for some of you, you don't trust the church, and you have good reason. For some of you, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, I'm not going to give to a church. That's, That's great. Find some place to invest your time, and your money. Because I guarantee you that you will be more fulfilled if you pre-decide to invest in something beyond yourself. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, great, you sold me. So how much should I give? 10%? I bet you're going to say 10%, right? This is the tithing message is coming. Right, look, the the medium income for millennials in D.C. is 54,000 a year. And the group of people who make 50000 a year in D.C., based on my research, they give about 6.5% of their income. Right? So if you're figuring out how much should I give away, I've got a really rousing challenge for you. Be average. right? Be average. Right? At least, can you at least be average? Now, I think you should be working. I believe in progressive giving. Like My wife and I, we're working to give a larger and larger and larger percentage of our income. For me, it's not about just, like, there's not some magic number. It's about continually, sacrificially investing in something beyond yourself. Like I said, pick an organization or two, invest your time and your money. I want to recap quickly. Paul says this. He says, look, tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, and to share with others. As you get older and as you grow in your career, and as your, as your resources increase, you will find it easier and easier for your hope to migrate to how much money is in your bank account or to your job or to whatever it might be. And the only way you're going to keep your hope from migrating is if you predecide to use a percentage of the gifts and the talents and the resources that you've been gifted with to invest in someone and something beyond yourself. I believe this with all my heart because I've seen this in my own life. I've lived in D.C. long enough to know how easy it is to be captured by the idols of this city that promise us joy and promise us the good life. But in the end, they really are empty. And I think if you do this, you'll begin to save better. You'll begin to spend less. And you'll begin to understand what a demon debt is. Because as your heart shifts, you begin to realize more fully the choices you're making. And giving redirects your heart. 
the world, especially after this election, or maybe I should say it's exposed after this election, is longing for a message and a vision of hope. And it's sold out generosity. It's sold out generosity, not just, of time, not just of money, but of time and of talents. It's sold out generosity that, that captured the early church world, that, that they were so impressed by the way that the earliest Christians would serve people beyond themselves. It was sold out generosity that captured the, the, the world of the early church. And it's that same type of sold out generosity that can provide an image of hope and an image of grace and an image of love to a world that is hungry, that is longing for a vision of something better. Because whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left, you know that the way that the country is going and the way that things are going are not sustainable. We can't continue to be this divided. And so I hope, I pray that as a community that we would model a generous love, a generous grace, that we would invest our lives in this city and the organizations who are working to make a difference, that we would invest ourselves, that we'd invest our time and our money to seeking the peace and the renewal of this city. And that by doing so, that we would put God's love on display to a world that is so desperately looking for another way. And our generosity allows us, slowly but surely, to help Christianity become known for our radical love. Practice abundance. Let's pray. God, there are so many resources in this room, so much talent. And our city and our world is longing for a vision of hope. It's longing to see what love looks like on display. And I pray that you'd begin to stir in our hearts that we would begin to ask the question of where are we investing? Where are we investing our time and our resources? Are we spending it all on ourselves Are we generously giving? I pray that you'd continue to work on us over the next next few weeks and a few months as we as a country begin to wrestle with what the future looks like.